Hello and welcome to Physical Attraction, on this episode of our nuclear fusion series, The Big Three Tokamaks. In the last couple of episodes, we discussed the first few fusion reactor studies, people really beginning to grapple with the practicalities of not just getting plasma to behave long enough to generate energy from nuclear fusion, but actually how they could then harness that power in a way that was practical and cost-competitive with other sources of energy. As we discussed, the engineering problems multiply many times over the closer you look at the project. None of them really mean that fusion is totally impossible, or even necessarily that much worse than other sources of energy once it's been developed, but it's indicative that the promise of limitless, cheap, clean, practically free energy that is constantly dangled surrounding fusion is really a very long way from reality. Perhaps, if you're being cynical, utterly divorced from reality. But, frankly, I regret marrying reality in the first place, so we'll push on. In the 1970s and 1980s, there was renewed impetus behind fusion, in the US and Europe especially, motivated by the oil shocks. Realising that perhaps dependence on foreign oil and finite fossil fuels was not necessarily the best way to go, a realisation that I'm sure will eventually sink in, funding for alternative nuclear energies and other renewables increased. Inertial confinement fusion sprang up as a new arm of fusion, with first Janus and then Shiva gradually building larger and larger machines to try to force fusion to happen with sudden, explosive compression by lasers. Meanwhile, the whole world of magnetic confinement fusion had gone mad for the tokamak, and more or less abandoned their earlier pinch and stellarator ideas entirely, drawn in by the increased confinement times and temperatures that the Russians had been achieving with their tokamaks. Where we last left off, dozens of tokamaks were being designed and built across the world, including a fanciful list of names, the Texas tokamak, the doublet tokamak, Ultracore, Ormac, the symmetrical tokamak to name just a few. Now this wasn't entirely an exercise in scientific competition, with different institutions vying to be the first to attain nuclear fusion, nor was it entirely duplication of each other's results. Instead, the devices were exploring different parameters for the plasma physics. One of the key realisations early on in the tokamak's life was that the cross-section of the plasma could make a difference. Plasmas that were shaped like a half-moon, or with a D cross-section, could perform better than perfect cylinders of plasma. Although physicists had by now realised that plasma could behave in incredibly complicated and unexpected ways, and that its behaviour in magnetic fields could give rise to all kinds of instabilities and quirks that weren't predicted simply by treating the plasma like a fluid, or like a collection of charged particles moving in electromagnetic fields, a full theory of how plasmas in tokamaks operated, capable of predicting how they would respond to the specific conditions that they designed in these tokamaks, well, that full theory was still elusive. As a matter of fact, many of the main theoreticians and fusion scientists disagreed about why tokamaks were more successful, or how they could be made even better. The interpretation of the experimental results first obtained by the Russians, and then later by other generations of tokamaks around the world, was highly controversial. But a new set of theories did arise, with semi-empirical scaling laws gradually being derived. A scaling law is usually a simplified formula that roughly approximates the behaviour of a system based on how it depends on the parameters that you vary. So, a great example is a charged particle in a magnetic field. Now, in reality, we have Maxwell's equations and the Lorentz force law, so we can calculate exactly what forces are on that charged particle, so we can figure out things like its trajectory and how it will accelerate and so on. But let's say you don't actually have access to any of that theoretical apparatus, and all you have is experimental results. Well, with a little experimentation, you might soon realise that when the charged particles orbit in circles in the magnetic field, that the radius of that orbit is proportional to the speed of the particle, 
and inversely proportional to the magnetic field and its charge. This is a well-known phenomenon. The Larmor radius is R equals mv over qb, if I remember it rightly. And that way, even though you might not know the underlying equations, you can still vary things like the magnetic field, the mass of the particle, its speed, and so on, and you can still predict its behaviour based on these scaling laws. The only problem is that without understanding the underlying theory, you can't know if your formula applies all the time. And indeed, if you sped up that charged particle in a magnetic field until it was travelling at relativistic speeds, close to the speed of light, then you would need to change the formula and make a relativistic correction, and the radius would no longer simply be proportional to the speed of the particle. So essentially, by designing different and varied tokamaks and running different experiments with them, the scientists were aiming to explore all of the different parameter space of tokamak design to try and figure out these scaling laws by having lots of different data points. So this really consists of, you know, plotting confinement times, plotting the radius of the tokamak, plotting the B-field strength against each other, and seeing what relationships, if any, you could find between these different variables. Then, hopefully, if you find some underlying rules of scalings and so on, when the time came to build the big tokamak, they would hopefully know something about how it was going to perform in advance. So the kind of parameters they were looking for related the confinement time of the plasma to a few other parameters. The magnetic field in the tokamak, the diameter of the tokamak, the cross-section that was differently shaped, the current that's flowing through the plasma itself, and the aspect ratio. In other words, that's the size of the hole in the donut ring of steel and magnets that encloses the plasma in a tokamak. Over the years, several tokamaks would be built where that donut hole was extremely small, very thin indeed, and these are generally called spherical tokamaks. It was known at the time that the aspect ratio for the tokamak affected the performance of the plasma in a number of different ways, but it wasn't necessarily clear which approach would succeed. A big part of the reason why tokamak scientists were able to even consider fiddling about with each of these different parameters to see what might happen was because the diagnostic tools that they used had gotten much better. Rather than realising that your experiment had failed when plasma smashed into the walls of the device, or settling for a few blurry photos of the instabilities as they writhed out of control, scientists could get a better sense of what was going on in different regions of the plasma and at different times. This allowed them to change things like the aspect ratio, or the plasma cross-section, and see how the plasma then behaved differently. There was an initial burst of enthusiasm for tokamaks in the early 1970s, motivated by Jimmy Carter in America keen on renewables and the oil crisis, and because the technology was new to the West. But eventually this proliferation of dozens of different kinds of tokamaks was bound to peter out, particularly when it became clear to funders that they were really plasma physics experiments rather than the next big thing that was going to lead to future energy straight away. This was particularly true in the US. Under Jimmy Carter, the fusion budget was doubled from nearly $400 million to $800 million, and they set an official target that they would have an operating fusion demonstration plant by the year 2000. When the backlash came, alongside Ronald Reagan, the plans were abandoned, and the fusion budget was chipped away over the next few years. Amazingly, and talk about mismanagement here, Charles Safer tells the story of a huge $300 million magnetic mirror project. Now this project was actually completed, and they were just ready to switch it on and start doing experiments, before it was scrapped from the budget entirely. So they actually had an opening session for this thing, they had an opening party, a few days after they'd been told that the project had been canned, there wouldn't be any more funding for it, and in fact it was never turned on. It's just unbelievable. 
In the 1970s, when magnetic fusion research was in the optimistic phase, there had been two projects designed. One was the tandem mirror experiment, designed to be a small demonstration plant, and the large-scale project was dubbed the Mirror Fusion Test Facility. The MFTF was being constructed throughout the 1980s, even as the political situation changed and funding began to dry up. Meanwhile, experiments at the tandem mirror experiment Darrow plant demonstrated that confining plasma might prove to be a far trickier prospect than they'd previously thought in this kind of device. So they had this smaller version of the mirror experiment, and it turned out that the magnetic bottle was pretty leaky, and that was really the final straw for those in charge of the purse strings. But it's jarring to consider how it ended. They'd already planned the dedication ceremony for the site, which went on as planned, even though the project had zero budget and would never be used. One attendee said that they felt like they were attending a wake. Just like that, all of the scientific effort put into those projects, all of the people who'd been inspired to study magnetic confinement fusion and had dedicated their careers to it, and the hundreds of millions of dollars just went up in smoke. Now, some of these ideas of the magnetic mirror have been resurrected by the polywall devices that we'll talk about later on, but decades later, and we still don't know if this precise design will ever work. You can still go online and see the photos of the scientists involved, having backed the wrong horse, stood in front of their newly constructed state-of-the-art fusion reactor, doomed never to be switched on. Eventually, as the squeeze on funding deepened, all of those fancy and multivaried tokamak creations, the Elmo Bumpy Taurus, the Impurity Studies Experiment, the Texas Tokamak, and any number of other magnetic confinement fusion projects were abandoned in favour of a single behemothic project. Similar things happened in Japan and Europe, the other two major centres of magnetic fusion research at the time. A vast array of different projects with a panoply of different approaches to magnetic confinement fusion gradually gave way to one big tokamak that sucked up all of the funding and expertise from the surrounding area, with the basic proposition that, okay, if we concentrate our resources, we might actually get something that comes close to break-even. In Japan, then, the tokamak was called the JT-60. In the USA, the tokamak was called the Tokamak Fusion Test Reactor, or TUFTU. And in Europe, the tokamak was built in Cullum Laboratories in Oxfordshire, right near where I'm recording this now, and it was called the Joint European Taurus, JET. In some ways, these three devices were all very similar approaches to magnetic confinement fusion. Just build a big tokamak, larger than anything that's previously been constructed. JET would be able to induce larger currents in its plasma to exploit the pinch compression effect, and TFTR would have stronger magnetic fields than the other two, but in broad strokes, the three big tokamaks were similar projects. And they had similar aims too. After all, this was not the 1950s anymore, the glorious early days of fusion where no politicians or funders had heard the story before, and everyone was happy to throw money at a problem that seemed close to solution. At this point, you had to actually demonstrate that your machine had com accomplished something tangible. So each of these tokamaks was set up to actually use deuterium tritium fuel, which, for its low energy barrier, was the most feasibly attainable fusion reaction in the near future. And they were each of them designed to reach the symbolic goal of break-even. Saying that this new device will make great contributions to our understanding of plasma physics, enabling future devices to generate power, is only going to work so many times. But saying that this device will generate as much power as it requires to run, and then the next one will be the big reactor that will actually work and can be integrated onto the grid, is more persuasive, no matter what pesky practicalities you're attempting to mask. 
So in the 70s and 80s, magnetic confinement fusion, gradually these alternative approaches, like pinches, stellarators, magnetic mirrors, lost favour and funding. Setbacks they had just emphasised the dominance of the tokamak as a model for magnetic confinement fusion. We'll talk about how, in a world where tokamaks have now dominated for 30 plus years, a lot of those old ideas are being picked up again, with private companies and with alternative experiments. But it was the tokamak that seemed most likely to achieve this important symbolic goal of energy break-even, and it became increasingly clear that you weren't going to get enough energy to build dozens of break-even tokamaks that could do that in parallel, so the world ended up with three main ones. Now, experiments in the US with the previous leading generation of tokamaks, like the Princeton Large Taurus, for example, which was the hastily converted stellarator that followed on from the Russian designs, had been promising. They'd come up with a new method of heating the plasma, above and beyond the heating you got just from pumping a current through it. Neutral beam heating, as it was called, involved shooting beams of neutral particles and atoms into the plasma. As they're neutral, they can collide with the plasma without being deflected by the magnetic field, and without creating plasma instabilities by interacting with the plasma along the way, as might happen if you bombarded it with charged protons or something. Then, when they collide, they become ionised, an electron is knocked off those neutral atoms, and they're confined like other charged particles in the plasma for a little while, transferring most of their heat and momentum for efficient plasma heating. This had allowed the Princeton Large Taurus to heat its plasma up to 60 million degrees Kelvin, which was considered to be just below the temperature threshold required, for break-even in a fusion reactor. Of course, temperature alone is not sufficient to reach break-even. You need that pesky fusion triple product, confinement time, plasma density, and the temperature of the plasma. But the scientists were pretty sure that, with a larger machine, they would be able to bring the magnetic fields and the density up. The TFTR was more than twice as big as its competitors, the JT60 and the JET. Yet ultimately, TFTR would not achieve break-even. Instead, it would sit there, quietly churning away over the next few decades, breaking record after record without ever quite doing what it was designed to do. Charles Safer, as ever, paints a grim picture of the lab in the 1990s. He writes, quote, The first thing that would strike a visitor to Princeton in the 1990s would be the circles. A large ring-shaped desk, a circular sofa surrounding a toroidal model of the TFTR, a semicircular auditorium and the countless loops of previous tokamaks displayed in the waiting room. The second thing that would strike a visitor was the air of quiet desperation hanging about the lab. The staff was trying to sell fusion to the public, and while TFTR was setting temperature records almost daily, nobody seemed to be buying. Budgets were still dropping, and the taxpayer didn't protest. End quote. Ultimately, the story of TFTR, which set itself the goal of break-even, was always a slight disappointment. When I come to the end of Joan Lisa Bromberg's excellent book on early fusion history, which was written in 1982, the year that TFTR started operations, she noted with a hint of optimism that TFTR was poised to cross the break-even line in that decade. And initially, in the early 1980s, the results seemed promising. In April 1986, for example, they achieved a fusion triple product of 1.5 times 10 to the 14 seconds per cubic centimetre. Now that was substantially higher than the fusion triple product that would be required for break-even, and close to that that had been calculated for commercial fusion, but the temperature just wasn't high enough for the plasma to actually ignite. So they were nearly there, but no cigar. Just a few months later, in July of 1986, they ran the tokamak in a different configuration, aiming to maximise temperature. And that, that led to a world record temperature of 200 million Kelvin, 
which was the highest non-explosive temperature that had ever been reached in a laboratory at that point. But it was still no good, because in order to attain those high temperatures, the density or the confinement time of the plasma had to suffer instead. So it was almost capable of reaching each of these individual goals in one configuration, but not combining them with that sort of magical extra bit that you needed to really get a self-sustaining fusion reaction plasma. It was close, but no cigar. The official write-up of TFTR does rather hide this fact. If you visit the page that Lawrence Livermore Laboratory have on the reactor, you find this. Quote, TFTR set a number of world records, including a plasma temperature of 510 million degrees centigrade, the highest ever produced in a laboratory, and well beyond the 100 million degrees required for commercial fusion. In addition to meeting its physics objectives, TFTR achieved all of its hardware design goals, thus making substantial contributions in many areas of fusion technology development. End quote. Well, that all sounds marvellous, especially the way that it managed to get five times hotter than apparently was necessary, but it rather hides the fact that it was sold to the public as being possible to achieve break-even, and it didn't quite do it like it was supposed to. Naturally, though, there was a lot of important plasma physics to arise out of this generation of tokamaks. It was through studying TFTR that it became clear that turbulence was the next big potential issue with plasmas. And, with no closed physical or scientific theory, even of the kind of turbulence that occurs when you turn up in your tap full blast, attempting to gain a full theory of the turbulence of magnetohydrodynamic plasmas seemed a long way off theoretically. Instead, what TFTR allowed physicists and experimentalists to do was to explore these new regions, new temperatures, new densities, new confinement times, which had never before been achieved, and confirm that their scaling laws held where they did hold and, of course, hope not to crash into any unpleasant surprises along the way. In 1995, TFTR scientists explored a new fundamental mode of plasma confinement, enhanced reversed shear. This new technique involved a magnetic field configuration, which substantially reduced plasma turbulence. Now, they were working on practical matters that would eventually be crucial for a sustainable reactor such as recovering the tritium from inside the tokamak, which is important for the reactors discussed previously, if you want your fusion reactor to be somewhat self-sustaining without requiring lots of rare tritium fuel. And on the physics side, a greater number of modes of the plasma were being discovered. If you've ever messed around with a guitar, you'll know something about modes of vibration and oscillation. When plucked, every string will resonate with the superposition of these modes. A simple mode might be a string that's plucked in the centre, and oscillates through being a simple hill, bulging like the crescent moon. The second order mode might have a peak and trough, like a sine wave. A third order might have three peaks, and so on. Every vibration, every oscillation, can be expressed as the sum of these normal modes, in the same way as you can decompose any sound of any kind of oscillations into oscillations of many different frequencies. In the same way, there are fundamental modes of behaviour for the behaviour of a magnetohydrodynamic plasma or system. There are frequencies, like the cyclotron frequency, at which the system likes to oscillate or operate. The cyclotron frequency, that is the frequency at which the plasma will rotate around the centre of the tokamak, under its magnetic field. By examining these idealised modes, and working out how a real plasma is composed of them, our numerical simulations of plasma behaviour, and our theoretical understanding of it, and hence our ability, of course, to predict what it will do in a reactor, all improve. Of course, not all modes are desirable. 
In the same way that the resonance at the correct frequency can shatter glass or cause a bridge to collapse, certain modes in a plasma can be disruptive or explosive too. One example discovered at TFTR was the possibility that waves in a plasma, both of particles and electromagnetic fields, called Alphan waves, could settle into an undesirable modes that would actually sort of resonate and accelerate fast ions out of the reactor altogether, resulting in a loss of confinement and a loss of energy, because you're pushing out all of these fast particles and they take their energy with them. TFTR also contributed to our understanding about the physics of alpha particles in plasmas. Alpha particles are familiar to those of you who remember way back when we did unusually hot our radiation episode. They're a type of radiation, helium nuclei. They were produced when a great many fusion reactions took place. In the designs promoted by TFTR, it was important to pay close attention to these alpha particles, because the amount of energy that they passed on to the still-fusing plasma was crucial to determining how much energy would be required to drive a sustainable fusion reaction. So even TFTR, which would never break even, managed to increase the fusion power that it released by a factor of a thousand over the Princeton Long Torus, and by a factor of a hundred over its own initial operating parameters. So those who championed it would rightly point out that when it was first designed in the 1970s, the most power that had ever been produced by fusion was a few millionths of a watt, maybe enough to turn the hand on your wristwatch, but nothing else. To generate this feeble return required megawatts of energy to power the magnets and heat the plasma. It seemed like a futile endeavour. But by the time the TFTR had finished operating, the tokamak was generating millions of watts of power, having improved on many competing designs from the previous decade by more than a thousand times. This failure to reach break-even doesn't look so bad when you realise just how far away this was from other fusion reactors producing tiny amounts of power. And fusion enthusiasts will always show you this very impressive graph where they'll show you how the uh, power that's being produced by fusion reactors is basically increasing exponentially as years go on, starting with things like the Ormac and the Princeton Long Tourist producing millionths of millionths of watts of power and moving towards JET and TFTR and JT as they get better and better and better and can produce suddenly up to a megawatt of power in some cases. In 1994, the amount of power produced by fusion by the TFTR was around 10.7 megawatts. Now, this isn't quite enough to break even even then, but then you think 20 years ago it was producing millionths of a watt, so it's got better by a factor of 10 to the 12, so you can see why scientists are saying, well, we've actually seen improvements in how these tokamaks can produce power that are order a million times, so it's not wholly unreasonable to believe that maybe, maybe the next generation, if they can just improve by a factor 10, a factor of 100, then we'll start producing power that is greater than the amount of power we need to put in. At the time, of course, TFTR's 1994 uh, power production of 10.7 megawatts, it wasn't enough to break even, but it was a world record for energy generation from fusion power. So you can see that the success and failure of these experiments isn't being measured on whether they can generate neutrons or not, indicating that some kind of thermonuclear reaction had taken place, but instead the energy from the reaction was a pretty big fraction of what you were throwing in. So you're getting a flicker in the darkness rather than just the hint of a spark. But this would prove to be the TFTR, arguably the high point of American research and development into magnetic confinement fusion. Already, by the 1990s, 
government investment in magnetic confinement fusion was following what they called the Logic One path. In the 1970s, various different trajectories for fusion funding had been mapped out, with various different end destinations. Logic 4, they said, would correspond to a working reactor by 2000. Logic 3 promised a working reactor by 2020. But this, Logic 1, was the path marked Fusion Never. And indeed, as the US budget dwindled and TFTR failed to achieve break-even, it certainly seemed that nuclear fusion, at least with magnets, might not have the stars and stripes planted in it, after all. But this generation of fusion reactors was not capable of achieving break-even. It was due to the unusual configuration of TFTR's plasma, that all-important aspect ratio in the plasma cross-section, these geometrical quantities that we told you made such important differences to how the plasma behaved, and led to all these different types of tokamak being constructed. TFTR had backed the wrong horse for break-even. It would always suffer from the problem of failing to juggle the demands on confinement time, temperature, and density. But in Cullum in Oxfordshire, the joint European Taurus was making strides towards break-even. And eventually, for the first time, JET would prove to be the fusion reactor that got closest to break-even, falling short by a factor of a third. Next time, we'll tell you the story of JET and its record-setting heydays. But of course, merely breaking even is not enough. Any fusion scientist or engineer will show you that wonderful graph that shows sustained improvements in fusion power gradually inching towards break-even. But of course, climbing this graph where every reactor confines plasma for 10 times longer, generates 10 times more power, achieves temperatures 10 times higher than before every few years, it's only going to get more and more difficult. In the field of computer science, we've talked on this show a long time ago about Moore's law, this idea that the number of semiconductors you can fit on a chip is doubling every couple of years, and along that, alongside that you have a measure of computing power that is doubling every couple of years. Well, sustaining Moore's law gets more and more difficult as you go along and requires more and more effort, and the same is true of this nuclear fusion power. So it was only going to get more and more difficult to build these big reactors, and no single country could really fund the next rung on that ladder, the next big tokamak to blast through break-even and towards something that could dream of being commercially viable for its price tag. And as TFTR, JET and JT60 were vying to be the first to break-even, there was a plan hatched amongst fusion scientists for a truly international collaboration, one that would be larger in scale than any physics experiment previously attempted, any power plant previously built. This was ITER, the way. Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at PhysicsPod, on Facebook, the Physical Attraction page is there. You can donate to us on PayPal, Physics Pod, and Patreon. We have a Patreon page, Physical Attraction. Um, the website is www.physicspodcast.com, where you'll find the contact form. It goes straight to my email. Any comments, questions, concerns, show ideas you'd like to hear in the future when we're free from nuclear fusion, anything along those lines, just let me know. Um, you can always review us on iTunes if you like what we do. Tell your friends about our tokamak journeys together and anything you like. All these things help to support the show and make it worthwhile to keep going. We'll be back with a story about Penthouse Fusion. Yes, the pornographic magazine baron who funded a nuclear fusion reactor in his basement. It's going to be an interesting little side story. Until then, take care.